Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast for the relentlessly curious. This season, our host and Applied Curiosity Lab's chief curiosity seeker, Becky Saltzman, will be sharing the studio with ACL's chief experience producer and favorite sister, Jennifer Felberg. The lens is, and always will be, curiosity. Each week, fun informal conversations center around one delectable curiosity bite designed to give your brain the time and ideas to think about thinking, to flex your curiosity muscle, and maybe even revolutionize the way you think. Welcome to the special episode of Applied Curiosity Lab Radio. In this episode, my co-host Jennifer Felberg has slipped away on vacation, and in her place is my good friend Kimberly Whaley. Who is Kim, and why this special episode? You ask such good questions. Kimberly Whaley is a law professor and educator who demystifies the Constitution for curious people, people who want to engage in informed discussion, dissection, and debate. And if you're here at Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, that's you. Kim is also a full-time professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law, a former assistant United States attorney, a former associate independent counsel in the Whitewater investigation where she worked with Justice Brett Kavanaugh and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Kim is a former law clerk to the federal district court judge in D.C. and a practicing lawyer for over 25 years. You can catch her where? In the Bulwark, in the Hill, and I'm also... CBS News legal analyst. I also do legal analysis for the BBC. So those are the various outlets and NPR. All of these contacts, all of the things to which we're referencing will be in the show notes at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. Kimberly is also the author of the upcoming book, How to Read the Constitution and Why. So you'll have plenty of links to grab all that good stuff. Today, we're going to be dissecting, discussing, and debating the Mueller report. And if you're trying to decide which team we're on to decide whether to tune in or not, you may be experiencing confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is our natural tendency to search for and accept evidence that supports our pre-existing beliefs and reject equally valid evidence that does not. And here is your curiosity bite. Can you overcome confirmation bias? All right, which of these is you? Number one, you know what you know, and you don't want to hear from people who don't get it. Number two, you have more important things to do and think about. Number three, you're fed up and disgusted with it all, with our country's leaders, the system, everything. Or number four, you're fascinated with politics and the Mueller report is at least somewhat interesting. You may have opinions about it. Today, as always, our lens is curiosity, and we're going to be aiming our lens at the Mueller report. How else would you describe it? We're going to unpack the key takeaways, what you need to know about the Mueller report. Two more important things to know about Kim are that, one, she throws down righteous dance parties in the kitchen with her gaggle of girlies, her daughters, and two, she is really a world-class expert in translating complex legal concepts into plain English for those of us who want to know how the law actually works. And Kim, where is the best place that people can get a hold of you, find your writings? Well, you can follow me uh, on Twitter at Kim underscore Whaley. And at that is spelled W-E-H-L-E, Whaley rhymes with daily. Or you can get me on my website, www.kimwhaley.com. All right, today we're going to be unpacking, dissecting, debating, and discussing the key takeaways from the Mueller report. Number one, what is this Mueller report? What makes it special? And why does the report exist? The Mueller report exists because it was required under a regulation that Mr. Mueller produce it to the Attorney General, now William Barr. This question takes us a bit back in time to Watergate. During the Watergate investigation, we've all heard of the Saturday Night Massacre, where President Nixon fired his Attorney General and started going down the line because he would not call off an investigation into the President of the United States. After that whole fiasco, Congress passed a statute that basically created an independent counsel that was appointed by judges, not by the attorney general, not by the president. So it was essentially an investigative arm of the Justice Department that was outside the Justice Department. The Supreme Court blessed that as constitutional. And that statute passed by Congress is the framework that Ken Starr worked under, and I worked with Ken Starr under, for purposes of investigating Bill Clinton. That statute lapsed, it died. And in its place, the Department of Justice passed 
an internal regulation. This is not a law passed by Congress. It's essentially a policy by the Department of Justice that created what's known now as a special counsel. That would be Robert Mueller. This is not the same as an independent counsel under the statute. This is a special counsel. And unlike for purposes of the Whitewater investigation, Mr. Mueller did answer directly to the attorney general. So the chain of command went right to the president. But under that regulation, he was required to produce a report and hand that report off to Attorney General Barr. So that is the 448-page Mueller report. Mr. Barr was not required under the internal regulation to make it public, but he did. So just to be clear, in a regular criminal investigation, we would not have this long report. We only have it because Mr. Mueller operated pursuant to this internal regulation that kicked into gear when former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein appointed him to investigate Russian interference into the 2016 election. So that's why we have this report. Okay, that makes sense. How should we think about regulations, laws, and things that are in the Constitution? I like to think of it almost like a food chain. We, we remember this probably from grammar school or elementary school, a pyramid. At the very top of the pyramid of laws, laws meaning rules that bind conduct, and if you violate a law, something will happen. There's a consequence. You could go to jail. You could pay a fine. You could have an order directing you to act a certain way. The top dog in our pyramid of laws in the United States is the Constitution. Uh, that binds both the states and the federal government. Below the Constitution are statutes enacted by the United States Congress, legislation, and that appears in what's called the United States Code. So that has to go through both houses of Congress, and the president has to sign that into law. Below that, at the federal level, are what are called regulations. Regulations are generally created by agencies, which actually are within the executive branch. So if you're driving down through Washington, D.C., you might see the Department of Justice, the Department of Labor, the Department of Transportation, anything that has the word department in it or commission in it, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Election Commission, all those are agencies that Congress created by statute, and then Congress gives those agencies the power to create what are known as regulations. And so this Department of Justice regulation was established pursuant to the Department of Justice's authority given by Congress to create laws, essentially. So a regulation is a law created pursuant to a bigger law. And I say bigger law, a more powerful law that would be uh, a statute enacted by Congress. So that would be the third tier in our food chain of laws. And then below regulations, we would have case law. Case law is decisions by judges. The top of that food chain would be the Supreme Court, but then we have lower judges, lower federal judges. And then separately, we have state legislators. So states also create, have their own, every state has their own mini Congress that creates laws and their own mini agencies that create regulations pursuant to those state laws and their own state court judges. So we basically have two separate systems. All of them are within the umbrella of the Constitution of the United States. It's the top dog of both all of the federal laws and all of the state laws, statutes, regulations, and what, what I mentioned are case laws, judge-made decisions that resolve individual disputes between parties. We'll have a visual representation of this in the show notes. What does the Mueller report cover? As we get into this, I want to have a framework for understanding what we're talking about what does it cover and what won't it cover? So the Mueller report is produced pursuant to, as I mentioned earlier, Rod Rosenstein handed off this investigation to Robert Mueller. And essentially what he said was, Bob Mueller, you are charged with looking into the interference by the Russians into the 2016 presidential election and whether there were any connections with the Trump campaign in that regard. And then secondly, he said, you can also investigate matters arising out of that primary question. So what, what's produced in the Mueller report is, number one, information that Mr. Mueller gathered relating to Russian interference in the election and the Trump campaign's relationship with Russian interference with the election. That's number one. And number two, what grew out of that first investigation which is the question of whether the president of the United States obstructed justice in connection with the investigation. So the, there's two big parts to this report. Number one has to do with Russian interference and the campaign's involvement in Russian interference. And number two has to do with obstruction of justice. That is, did Mr. Trump try to sort of stop the investigation into Russian interference in the election? So those are two separate parts of the report, two separate questions. This is not a comprehensive report into all things Russia, all things related to, to anything that is problematic 
with respect to Trump and Russia, with respect to Russian interference into our political system, et cetera. There are fairly narrow questions that Mr. Mueller resolved thoroughly. Well, why do people equate this to the Clinton Whitewater investigation and how they searched and searched and searched for things? And finally, when they couldn't find anything, they got him on Monica Lewinsky. I keep hearing people equate this with either a witch hunt or a fishing expedition and then equate this with what they did to Clinton. How is this different or the same? Well, I think it's the same in that we have two different presidents. We have a Democratic president investigated by a Republican prosecutor. That was Ken Starr. And then we have a Republican president, Trump, investigated by a Republican prosecutor. That would be Robert Mueller and, frankly, also Rod Rosenstein. The differences are, as I mentioned before, Whitewater was pursuant to a statute, um, and Mr. Starr had a lot more independence than Robert Mueller. There's no way Bill Clinton could have fired Ken Starr. So we heard for two years, is Trump going to fire Mueller? Is Trump going to fire Mueller? Bill Clinton did not have that level of power over Ken Starr because the statute governing that investigation made him more independent. Mr. Trump did have the power essentially to fire Robert Mueller. So that's legally, structurally, those are the two differences. The other thing is having worked on Whitewater, I mean, Whitewater arose as sort of a land deal in Arkansas gone bad prior to Mr. Clinton's involvement in federal presidential campaign. And in connection with that investigation, which was fairly tangential to the core powers of the presidency, they, they stumbled on the Monica Lewinsky issue and some false testimony that Mr. Clinton made in connection with his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. The situation with Mr. Trump is much, much more serious. Why? Because we know going into it that a hostile foreign power, that is Russia, one of the three countries that were named as the axes of evil by our last Republican president, George W. Bush, did hack into uh, our electoral process and attempt to sway our 2016 presidential election. That's extremely serious as a matter of the core functioning of our democracy. And the investigation, the question of Russian interference started under the Obama administration. This was not even about, okay, what did Mr. Trump do? This was about what did the Russians do? And that was really the core question before Mr. Mueller. And it's a question that is still not addressed. It's a problem that's still not addressed. There's you know hundreds of pages in the Mueller report about the Russian interference in the, the 2016 election. They're going to interfere in the 2020 election. Uh, everyone agrees on that. Everyone in the national security apparatus in the United States agrees on that. And that's deeply serious regardless of who happens to be in the White House. Those deep questions of kind of international national security and foreign interference in our electoral process, nothing even close to that was at stake in Whitewater. And of course, Mr. Mueller came up with multiple indictments. We have multiple people going to jail. Nothing even remotely coming close to that happened in the Whitewater investigation. I don't have the figures right now, but some bit players relatively speaking, were indicted, but they were not relating to these core questions of electoral integrity in the United States. Does the fact that Trump had the right to fire Mueller and he didn't, does that point to any kind of way we should evaluate his innocence? That's a really good question. So as I mentioned before, there are two parts of this report. Number one has to do with Rus Russian interference in the election. Number two has to do with obstruction of justice. As we know, Robert Mueller did not make a determination as to whether or not Mr. Trump could be prosecuted and convicted of obstruction of justice before a federal jury. That is not the same as concluding there was no evidence of obstruction of justice. There was evidence, a lot of evidence of obstruction of justice in part two of the report by the president of the United States. But essentially what Bob Mueller said was, well, the president is a unicorn. Most people can't fire the, the police officer, the prosecutor who is investigating them. If you or I were entangled in a criminal investigation, we could hire a really good private lawyer, but we would have no control at all over how the government conducts its investigation and prosecution. Because the president is the president, he can control that. He's at the tippity top of the Justice Department. He's the boss of all of the federal prosecutors. He's the boss of the FBI. And so essentially, Robert Mueller said, 
listen, that is tricky because he has the power to fire all these people. That makes it a little bit thornier when it comes to the question of when he tried to interfere in the investigation, was that illegal or was that not illegal? Because if he can fire someone, then there are legitimate reasons for firing. But the real thing that bothered Robert Mueller was that the Department of Justice has an internal policy saying we don't indict sitting presidents. And Mueller essentially said, you know, even though there's a lot of evidence of obstruction of justice, in fairness to Mr. Trump, if he can't go to trial and defend himself, I'm not going to put in the report that he committed a crime or could have committed a crime because that's not really fair. He, again, is, is a unicorn. He can't be prosecuted because he's president. So I'm not going to make the determination that he could have obstructed of ju justice because that would not be fair to him. Now, I don't know what determination he would ultimately have come to if there was not that internal DOJ uh, policy. That's why I think we need to hear from Mr. We need to hear from Mr. Mueller before the Congress to see absent that constitutional and internal DOJ roadblock to an indictment. How would he have treated this evidence if Mr. Trump were just a regular person like you and me? The whole idea of a sitting president cannot be indicted sits as a policy at the Department of Justice. It's not in the Constitution. It's not in any part of the pyramid, actually, that you discuss because it's not a law. It's not constitution. It's just a policy Correct. at the Department of Justice. And Mueller is working under that policy as an employee of the Department of Justice. That makes sense for him. How should people think about the whole idea that a sitting president can't be indicted? Where did that come from? How should we think about that? That actually came from out of both the Nixon administrations and the Clinton administrations in connection or around swirling around the Watergate investigation and the Whitewater investigation. So the Department of Justice has a an elite team of lawyers called the Office of Legal Counsel that give the White House advice on constitutional questions. The federal courts are not allowed to do that. They're not allowed to just give advice. They can't, federal judges can't act as lawyers. They just call balls and strikes and disputes. So when the president has a question, can I, for example, under the Bush administration, can we waterboard? Or is that a violation of international law as a matter of torture? That question went to these fancy lawyers in the Department of Justice, and they essentially give the president advice on whether something's constitutional or not. That's not binding. That's not a law. It's like if you or I went to a lawyer and asked for advice on, you know, should we make this investment or would that be a problem under the tax laws, for example? They're not judges. They're not legislators. They're just giving you advice. So Mr. Nixon and Mr. Clinton both went to the Office of Legal Counsel and said, listen, for Clinton, it was after the Star, Star Report came out. But they, they essentially went to the Office of Legal Counsel and said, you know what? We're president right now. Can you can you just give the prosecutors within the Justice Department that we're in charge of, respectively, advice as to whether it's okay to indict a sitting president? It shouldn't come as a surprise, I would should say, that people within the president's chain of command and being asked by the president if the, if the president could be indicted made a both in both cases, I think, a sound legal argument that you can't indict a sitting president. That's not the same thing as the Supreme Court saying that. That's just saying this is our opinion of it. But because it comes because it comes from the fancy lawyers in the Department of Justice, the Department of Justice, other lawyers basically adhere to that. So if you're working for a company, say you work for Coca-Cola and there's a general counsel and there's some kind of audit being done, the general counsel will give some sort of advice to employees as to what kinds of documents you should save on your computer. You shouldn't delete these kinds of documents because we might be audited. So that's the policy. A memo goes around. You make a little folder on your computer and you save those documents. It's not against the law to delete the documents. No federal judge has said that, but that's the policy of Coca-Cola. So you save it because that's your employer. Likewise, Bob Mueller works for the Department of Justice and the policy after Nixon and Clinton was you can't indict a president. So he's like, okay, I'm a company man. I work for the Department of Justice. This is the latest on this. I'm not gonna indict President Trump. There's nothing against the law about indicting President Trump. That's just what the policy is of the Justice Department today. I mean, Mr. Barr could change that policy. He could go today to this, the current Office of Legal Counsel and say, you know what, 
can you rethink the policy? I've got some additional questions, and I can get into that in some detail as to why you could easily, I think, reach the opposite conclusion as to why you could indict a sitting president. Mr. Barr could go to his OLC and say, you know what, I want you to revisit that in 2019. Um, that's a very old opinion. The Clinton one was 2000, I believe, or 2001, and reach a completely opposite conclusion. And then under the next president, we might, if there's wrong potential wrongdoing in the White House, we could see an indictment. It's really just happens to be what the rule is today, but there's nothing requiring it in the law or under the Constitution, although it's taken on a life of its own with respect to the Mueller investigation. When I think about this report, is it fair that I think about it in two simplistic chunks. One, what did the Russians do? And two, what did Trump do? Is that too simplistic? I don't think that's too simplistic. That's not how it's broken up, but I think that is a very fair and easy easy to digest way of breaking it up. Yes, what did the Russians do? And what did Trump do? And with respect to Trump, there's two branches of it. What did Trump do in connection with the Russians? And what did Trump do in connection with trying to stop the investigation? Okay, let's start with the Russians. Russians attack the election. How should we think about the word attack? And then how should we think about the word election? Attack is, of course, not a legal term. Uh, and we live in a cyber world that didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. So when, when we think of attack, we think of bombing you know, Pearl Harbor. We might think of some kind of invasions with guns and other kind of artillery. But in 2019 or 2016, cyberspace is one way of attacking another country, attacking an individual. We, we have malware on all of our computers because we don't want criminals attacking our, our own personal information. We've heard these stories of people saying, listen, you give me $50,000 or I'm going to corrupt your entire computer. I mean, this happens on a individual basis. Essentially, this is what happened in 2016 with respect to the Russians and the American electoral process. So let me answer your question, your second question first, and, and then I'll get back to the first question, that is what is an election? So even though, believe it or not, there is nothing in the constitution that expressly says Americans have a right to vote. It's there in different places, but there's nothing in there specifically saying we have a right to vote. Our right to vote is absolutely central to our freedoms in this country because it's pretty unique to have a situation where the individual is in, is the boss of government. We as individuals are the bosses of our government. The government is not the bosses of us, okay? So how are we bosses of our government? We don't like what government's doing. We go to the ballot booth. We vote the people out of office that we don't like what they're doing. We fire them. It's giving them a pink slip. It's saying you're out. We want someone else in. It's absolutely vital. It empowers every little guy to actually have a voice in how government works. So of course. If we go to the ballot booth, we want to make sure when we're voting for someone, the vote is real. Now, if we made the vote, we cast our ballot, and the people who accepted the ballot just basically threw it in the trash and made up numbers and said, this fake person or this fake actual winner is, is the winner, which happens in other parts of the world that claim to have democracies but don't, then our, then we don't, we're not really the boss of our government. Then then it's, it's a sham. It's a fake, right? So we're going, we're passing our ballot, but the ballot's going in the trash anyway, and someone else is picking the winner. We want to have a direct connection between our casting our ballot and who actually gets to have power over us, which is what government is. It's power over the individual, right? So we go to the ballot booth, we, we, we figure out, okay, who do we want to vote for? We do our own research. We might go door to door. We might have someone come door to door. We read up on the candidates' platforms. We find out through the media what the dirty laundry is. Did they have a mistress? Did they cheat on their taxes? Did they pay, pay their nanny under the table? All of these things bear on who we might want to vote for. So what the Russians did is multifold. One thing that they did was they took information that's publicly available on the internet. They also took information from the Trump campaign through Paul Manafort, the uh, campaign chairman. They got data on individual people and their likes, their dislikes. And then they essentially used experts in Russia uh, to feed information into people's individual computers, into their Twitter feeds, into their uh, Facebook feeds that was fake. Could we categorize that as hacking our brains? I think that's a good way of categorizing. And if you, if you take it back to this idea of if I go to the ballot booth, I want to know that I, when I cast my ballot, it's based on good information but the information that's being fed to me is fake. I mean, they would literally create fake Americans 
they would they would create a Joe Schmendrick from Philadelphia, blue collar worker, and create a Facebook account and create a Twitter account, and people would start following that person and think this was this guy's like me. This guy's could be my next door neighbor, and then you'd start believing Joe Schmendrick and following his Twitter account, thinking, wow, this this is really important. I need to pay attention to this information that Joe Schmendrick is telling me because you know this could affect my kids if I vote for candidate X or candidate Y. And so I go to the ballot booth and I vote for candidate Y based on Joe Schmendrick. Meanwhile, Joe Schmendrick is an avatar created by the Russians. But if Joe Schmendrick was at least perpetuating information that was true, essentially negative things about Hillary Clinton in this particular case that are true, why should we worry that it's an avatar if what they're, what the avatar is kind of feeding my brain, I know to be true anyway? Well, two things. One is, as it wasn't true, some of it wasn't true. You know, the whole thing about the Pizzagate and the Hillary Clinton you know, having some a uh, child sex ring out of a pizza parlor that actually I take my kids to. It's in Washington, D.C. It's a few blocks from my house. It's a family-owned restaurant. That was completely created, falsified online, right? And it, it, it motivated someone to show up in Washington armed, right? So, so that's quite serious. So some of the information is really wrong. The second piece is, you know, George W. Bush himself called the Russians an axis of evil. Putin is not interested in disseminating good information to Americans. He does not have, I'm not a sort of a military expert, but he doesn't have the military to kind of come into America and become a superpower again. So so how do you do it? You divide and conquer by, by separating Americans from within. The framers of the Constitution understood this. I can get into this in detail. They understood that one way of sowing discord and creating power over America is to pit Americans against each other. And that's what that's, I think, part of the campaign that that Putin had in mind in basically falsifying information and feeding it to Americans. And so that's one thing that he did. I think it's hard because none of us believe that we're susceptible to that. None of us. I think that we think that the other people are susceptible, the dumb people are susceptible. And I think also some people feel that at least Russia helped by revealing what was the truth, which were these Clinton emails. And although it's not cool that Russia hacked into any kind of Americans' computers, whatever, at least what they did was reveal something that was true, which were these Clinton emails. They fed people bad information. They would create fake rallies, actual physical rallies in the United States with planting, you know, Russian assets that posed as Americans and then recruiting Americans thinking this was a, a sort of a grassroots American movement. It was all puppeteered by the Russians. So that's one thing. And then there was a the hacking piece. That's the second piece. Okay. The hacking piece where they did hack into the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. They hacked into Hillary Clinton campaign, stole the emails. And they released them through, um, help me, Becky. WikiLeaks. Oh, uh, yeah. So then they released them through Wiki WikiLeaks. But but there is, in the 448-page report, just to be clear, the Russian intelligence agents in November 2016, 2016 did try to introduce corrupted files into election offices in several Florida counties. And at least in one of those counties, the hacks, hackers succeeded. So the hacking wasn't just into the DNC. In the Mueller report, it's not a big part of the Mueller report, but we do know there was actual hacking into the election infrastructure of individual states. So there are three concerns when you talk about Russia attacking the election. There is attacking our brains. There is attacking or hacking into government computers, essentially. And number three, hacking into individual computers. What about the voting mechanism, the voting machines. Well, I don't know about the individual clues. I want to back that up. I think there's a few things. They they hacked into our brains by feeding bad information on, on the internet and into our personal feeds. If that's what you mean by hacking, it's not like they steal saved information on your particular computer, as far as we know, but they hacked into by basically feeding us false information. They hacked into the DNC email servers and they hacked into um, at least with respect to the Florida election infrastructure itself. And then the fourth piece is they hacked into private technology firms responsible for manufacturing and administering election-related software and hardware, voter registration hardware, electronic polling station uh, hardware. So there's hardware hacking, there's hacking into our brains through bad information, and then there's hacking into what, the political rival of Mr. Trump. So those who were happy to have 
Hillary Clinton's information made public, that's only one piece of the hacking or one piece of the attack. The other pieces are attacking into the actual infrastructure of uh, the voting systems, either through the private technology providers or through the actual election infrastructure in the state. And there's also just feeding us lies and certainly not in a way that's aimed at fostering good policy and camaraderie in the United States. I personally, when I go to, and I, you know, I have four children, I, I, I want my vote to matter and I want it to be made on good, inf- on good information. Voting is the cornerstone of American democracy. If, if that link between my vote and who gets to, in office is broken and someone else is essentially manipulating who gets in office, then my power over my government goes away. If I think to myself, no one can hack into my wet matter, my brain, because I'm smarter than that. I'm immune to that fine. If I think to myself, I really value the fact that someone hacked into the servers so that we could see Clinton for all that she was worth and what she stood for. Okay, fine. But to ignore the Mueller report, to ignore the first part of the Mueller report, but the third point, that there is a potential that a foreign country, maybe today it's Russia, tomorrow it might be China, Iran, who knows, has the ability to get into the hardware and software of our actual voting mechanisms. And to ignore that seems completely strange to me, like to just suggest that there's no value to this report. If only the report highlighted that, to me, that seems like enough to be really interested in the contents of this report. Yeah, and I think it should be a primary objective of the United States Congress and the President of the United States to button that stuff up. Uh, You know, the, the technology is there to have airtight electoral systems, it's going to cost money, it's going to cost political capital. But again, I mean, wherever you are on the political spectrum, okay, whether you're on the far left and you want, you know, abortion rights, or you're on the far right and you're you're pro-life and want gun rights, it's totally irrelevant to what matters with respect to voting. The idea is People across the political spectrum don't want to bully government. They don't want the government coming in and taking their guns. Some people don't want the government coming in and making determinations about whether they have to carry a pregnancy to term. I mean, those are just two hot button issues that I'm choosing. Either way, you're talking about a big, bad government. If you want to be the boss of your government, the way to do it is at the ballot booth. If that process is broken, wherever you are in the political spectrum, if Putin is the one or, or as you mentioned, China or Saudi Arabia or wherever, that is actually manipulating that behind the scenes, then your power is gone. And that to me is, that is extremely serious. It's not a political question. It's not a blue versus red question. It's a right versus wrong question. It's a, do, do are we going to live long-term in a truly free democratic society where the structure is, sustains itself so the people are their own bosses? Or are we going to allow... Because of our political partisanship, we're just going to allow the this hacking and this manipulation just this once. If you allow it just this once, then then it's there to stay. I'm not an expert in technology, but I do know, or have heard anyway, that most of the information on the planet was created in the last couple of years. That is, I think the the pace and the intelligence and the sophistication of technology today and how fast it's gone is more than anyone can even fathom. So I personally can't say to myself, no one's hacking my brain. One particularly scary fact on this um, which has to do with this idea of deep fakes. And Rod Rosenstein mentioned this, um, I think, in the last year publicly when he was still in the Department of Justice. So there's technology to literally create avatars uh, of a candidate that look and create a video of a candidate making a speech, a candidate saying something confidentially to an aide that is totally manufactured. The entire video, the voiceover, the entire thing, completely 100% manufactured. Right. So that goes viral. How do we possibly know if the candidate actually said it or not? They can get in on a real video and say that was manufactured. That wasn't created. I mean, that is really scary that pretty soon even words out of candidates mouths can't be relied upon because technology could completely manufacture that. And we won't know the difference between true reality and fiction. That might be irrespective of whether it was produced by a foreign entity or or someone. Sure, but we country. know that we know for sure that, you know, Putin's a bad guy. Putin's not a good guy. That this 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 idea that he's our ally has been, I think it's still we all should cr- scratch our heads as to why this president insists on on pushing that narrative when 
every president to date, every Republican president, presidential candidate, everybody within the military would disagree with that. So we do know to the extent to which it's Putin that's feeding us false information. It's not to help us. Right. Let's jump over from the Russian Mm -hmm. side of the document of the report to the Trump side, where people talk about, I call it, I call it the three C's, collusion, conspiracy, coordination. Maybe the fourth C is whether Trump was and is complicit. And how to think about that statement, Trump was and is complicit. First of all, how to think about was versus is. Are there three stages? Because at one point he was a private citizen. Was it okay that he had dealings with Russia? Once he became a candidate, did that change? And once he became president, did that change again? How do we think about was and is? How do we think about whether he was complicit? And then maybe because you're going to weave it all together, how do we think about those three C's? Collusion, conspiracy, and coordination. Well, let me start with the idea of private citizen versus a public servant. And I, I've, um, I was on C-SPAN and a, a caller uh, called in on this question and said, you know, who cares if he builds a, if he was going to build a tower in uh, Moscow? I mean, he's a businessman. I don't, that doesn't matter. Why is everyone making a big deal out of that, that that wasn't disclosed, right? So it doesn't, you know, and there are laws that are out there that criminal laws that the Department of Justice and, and state's attorneys general can or cannot enforce regarding private parties. Private parties don't have special powers against each other. They can't, a private citizen can't put someone in jail, right? You can sue someone for money damages. You can sue someone for an injunction, but private citizens don't have the power to imprison people. They don't have the power to execute people. The government does. So that is, I think, for me, a huge distinction between whether someone's inside or outside of government, particularly the president, because he's in charge of of the whole criminal justice process. And he has the ability to pardon people and and grant clemency, even if they're, they're on death row. That's a tremendous amount of power. So a private citizen, what they do, the criminal justice system can decide what to do about that. Once they're in office, that's a different story. Getting into office is also a different story. We've heard a lot about background checks, right? I had background, I had a top secret security clearance. So I was at DOJ, the FBI, usually a retired FBI agent. will talk to all your friends. You have to submit all kinds of information. They want to find out, do you have any dirt in your background that you could be bribed with? What, where are your skeletons in the closet? We're not going to give you access to, you know, confidential information until we know the scoop on you. Presidents and members of Congress don't ever get background checks. What's the background check? The, the electoral process, the political process. So voters here through the media, through debates, by basically campaigns digging up dirt on e- either side, they find out where the where the skeletons are buried, right? So I think the issue with respect to you know the Trump campaign not disclosing its ties to Russia was that maybe voters would have cared about that. I mean, maybe they would have all voted the same way, but some people might have said, you know what, if you're, if you want to deal with in Moscow for a Trump tower, inevitably all the Russian oligarchs are tied to Putin. It means that you kind of want a favor from Putin. You want to negotiate with Putin. That might be something that matters to me when I vote. So when the president of the United States said he had no business dealings with Russia, that was not perjury. It wasn't a crime, but it was a lie because there is a, a signed deal sheet with his signature on it for, for Trump tower Moscow that wasn't disclosed. I think I think the problem there is we we just want all want good information. Give us re- good information uh, with respect to just the distinction between a private citizen and a public figure. Now, to the three C's you mentioned: conspiracy, collusion, or four C's, coordination and complicity. So, conspiracy is a legal term, and it matters because if someone commits a cons- conspiracy to violate a law, they can go to jail. What Mueller determined is no one in the Trump campaign committed conspiracy. They didn't, they didn't have enough um, contacts with the Russians to make, to give rise to putting them potentially in jail. I like to think of it, you have a wheelbarrow with rocks in it. There were rocks in it, but not enough rocks to overflow that you could actually put someone in jail. Conspiracy requires a meeting of the minds. There were over a hundred contacts, more than a dozen people in the campaign that had multiple contacts with Russia. They might've caught some balls from Russia. They didn't pitch them. They didn't pitch the balls back. They didn't have an agreement to actually sort of thwart the American electoral process. The agreement itself, the meeting of the minds is what 
puts potentially somebody over the conspiracy threshold and puts them in jail. Assuming that there wasn't a Department of Justice policy that a sitting president can't be indicted, would that analysis of whether there were enough rocks in the wheelbarrow to constitute conspiracy or moving forward with a charge of conspiracy, how do we think about that policy with regard to the decision that there weren't enough rocks? Would there still be not enough rocks even if there wasn't the policy that a sitting president can't be indicted? Yes, because the rocks, the policy had nothing to do with deciding not to indict. Mueller was trying to be fair to the president, saying, listen, I'm not going to ping you if you can't defend yourself because you can't be indicted. The Justice Department is happy saying we're not indicting. We don't find enough. We'll, we'll let you off the hook, but we're not going to charge you with something when we can't actually follow through a trial. So Mueller said there was not sufficient rocks for conspiracy. But the footnote there is a lot of the information relating to that was in Russia. So there were two indictments that are uh, that are still out there against Russians, one that came out in June 2018, one that came out in July 2018. Conspiracy indictments, conspiracy to defraud the United States in the elections. Mueller did indict Russians. They can't force the Russians to come to the United States to undergo trial, so those indictments are just sitting there. And they can't force Russians to give information, to sit before grand juries, to respond to subpoenas. It's I have no idea. It's conceivable that if Mueller had the power to go to Russia and get more information, then we'd have more rocks in the barrel. I don't know. The rocks that he was able to gather did absolutely cleared the Trump campaign of conspiracy, but it did not clear the Trump campaign of collusion. Collusion is not a legal term. Why do we hear no collusion, no collusion, no collusion, number one? And if it's not a legal term, how can you determine yes, collusion, no collusion? What does it even mean? It means what it means to you and to me. It's a it's a regular term. It's like the term attack. There is nothing in the law that has anything to do with collusion. That is not a, a legal term. You can't put someone in jail for collusion. Uh, and Mueller made this very clear. Why do we keep talking about it? I think it's extremely unfortunate that the Attorney General of the United States used the word collusion and said there's no collusion. That is not what Mr. Mueller determined. And the DOJ memo saying you can't indict a sitting president must mean that if there's going to be accountability for any president, it has to be through Congress, through impeachment. I think that would be the obvious alternative. You can't fire a president by indicting him. You can fire a president through impeachment. And collusion would clearly be a basis for considering impeachment. Collusion would just mean, in this instance, what we do know from the Mueller report, the Russians offered help. And the Trump campaign accepted it. They didn't then agree to sort of to defraud the United States together, but they didn't call the FBI and say, listen, you want to give me dirt on my opponent. I, I just I'm, I'm not comfortable with this. You guys are bad guys. I'm going to take the high road here. Uh, they didn't do that. And I think some people will say good because I didn't want Hillary to win and they should, you know, it's brass knuckle tactics. But I think other people might say, listen, any kind of sort of Accepting aid from the enemy is a problem systematically. It's a structurally a problem. We have to maintain integrity to maintain a solid system electoral process. That tends to be, I think, an admirable point of view. So is it fair to say that whether Trump colluded is subjective? I mean, it's not really something that someone can say this and this and this point to this and this and this because their definition of collusion may be different. And how do we think about that versus that he's complicit? or that he coordinated. Clearly, we understand conspiracy. That's a legal term. But these other C words floating out there, why should we think about them? What did they find? Why do we care? If, in fact, the law is the law, and it was clear that there's not enough evidence. Some people say they exonerated him. Some people say there's not enough evidence. It's clear that there's not anything to go forward with that. Why are we still talking about collusion, no collusion? He's complicit, not complicit. He coordinated. Well, they did find, he did find there was no coordination. And that is not really a legal term either. But when you think about coordination, and I think that actually, I think that might've come from the referral. I'd have to double check, but that might've come from the referral Rosenstein, which is why he had to use that word. But the point is, when you think about coordinating in your life, Hey, you know, you you're coordinating a potluck. You bring the fruit salad. I'll I'll bring the mashed potatoes. That's different from saying, listen, you know, I found twenty bucks on the street. Uh, maybe the old lady dropped it, but I'm going to pick it up and keep it anyway. I think what the Trump campaign did was the latter. They accepted it. They didn't call out Putin. They didn't they didn't let anybody know that the Russians were involved in trying to help them, but they didn't coordinate. They didn't agree to, you know, bring the fruit salad along with the the, the mashed potatoes, right? Um, these are fine-tuned distinctions, but I think we as a 
American populace have to consider is the standard for presidency something other than, oh, they didn't commit a felony, so that's okay for them to be in this really important job. Some would say, listen, you you want a higher standard than that. I mean, I don't want someone who almost committed a felony, not quite, to watch my children or to be a principal of an elementary school. I mean, there are lots of important jobs that involve integrity, that involve important decision-making, that we hold people to a higher standard. And so I think it's unfortunate that we're sort of dancing around, well, we we, we don't have enough rocks in the barrel to put someone in jail. That's that's a pretty That's a pretty low bar for keeping someone in the most powerful position on the planet. So there were rocks in the wheelbarrow when it comes to to collusion. There were rocks in the wheelbarrow um, when it comes to lots of connections with the Russians. And if you're on Team Trump, I can see you don't care about that. But even if you're on Team Trump, I don't think you're on Team Putin. And that that's really the problem. It's there. There's a something's rotten in in the scenario, regardless of whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent. I just don't want Putin involved in my government. And if you think that Putin isn't the enemy because you think it's better to work with our enemies, it's better not to have these adversarial relationships, then you can just simply replace Russia with China or with Iran or with Saudi Arabia. You can feel free to replace Russia with any other country because what Russia did wasn't uniquely Russian. Yeah, I mean, this this gets to my bridge analogy. You know, imagine a bridge crossing a rushing river and you have people that you have cops on the bridge directing traffic and you might have Republican cops one day that are pulling over cars and you don't care because they're not pulling you over. You have Democratic cops the next day pulling over, the next month pulling over cars. You don't care because they're not pulling you over. Um, And people are getting up in arms about the unfairness of the blue cops and the unfairness of the red cops and everybody's fighting. Meanwhile, no one's paying attention to the fact that the bridge itself is corroding. It's been there for 120 years. It was, you know, grandma went across it on her horse and buggy. No one's paying attention to it because they're so worried about the cops on the bridge. But one day, because everyone's ignoring the cops on the bridge or the the infrastructure of the bridge, the bridge collapses and everybody, blue, uh, red, silver, they all go down crashing to their deaths. And in allowing the electoral process to be corroded and allowing this checks and balances and accountable government to be corroded, the whole system goes down. And that's that's the concern that we have to have uh, a structure in place to ensure that power is corrected. So, I mean, another analogy I use is you might work at a coffee shop or your teenager works at a coffee shop and they have systems in place to make sure people don't steal. I mean, maybe everyone they hire is is of impeccable integrity, but maybe maybe people are good liars and some people get by and, they, and they're going to steal. So you ha- might have security cameras. You might have a process for making sure that the money is counted carefully. You might count cups at the end of the day. Why do you do that? Because it's the only way to keep your coffee shop open. If people are stealing, if the structure breaks down, the coffee shop will eventually close. And that's the concern here, is that allowing the electoral process, the checks and balances to corrode, the coffee shop that is American democracy could close and we're not even aware of it because we're so worried about who's the one behind the cash register on a given day. Fair enough. Let's spend the rest of the time talking about two things. Number one, the rocks in the barrel are the chunks or pieces of evidence. And you said a couple of things. The bar for the president has to be higher than no felony. And also thinking about the rocks in the wheelbarrow with regard to obstruction of justice. Why is this issue of obstruction of justice still open? I thought that there was no obstruction, no collusion, no conspiracy. Why are we still debating this whole issue of obstruction of justice? Can't we just put this to bed? Okay, so there were not enough rocks in the wheelbarrow for conspiracy, but more than 800 prosecutors have agreed, former federal prosecutors, Democrats, Republicans, have agreed publicly that there were more than enough rocks in the wheelbarrow to charge and prosecute the president of obstruction of justice. Now, the president's attorney general, his handpicked attorney general, William Barr, sort of disagreed or sort of went out ahead of Mr. Mueller and said there were not enough rocks in the wheelbarrow. And I can talk about, he had a very, I think, fine-tuned, complicated, nuanced, theoretical legal argument for that that has to do with the fact that the president is a unicorn, that he's in charge of everybody. So he essentially can't obstruct justice because he's allowed to fire people. But it's really beside the point, And that is, we're beyond the question of whether anyone's going to jail anymore whether the president would go to jail. He's not going to go to jail. No one else in the campaign is going to go to jail. I mean, Michael Cohen went to jail and Paul Manafort. There are people close to the president going to jail. But when people say no one's above the law, 
the president can't be above the law either because then we'd have a monarchy. And that's clearly what the framers didn't want. So if you can't indict someone in that office, you can't hold anyone accountable, even if there's a lot of rocks in the wheelbarrow, then you have to go to another branch of government, which is Congress. So at this point, whether there were enough rocks in the wheelbarrow or not is irrelevant. There were certainly plenty of them for Congress to be very, very worried about whether this person is the right person for this job given all the rocks in the wheelbarrow and other things. And in our system of government, the way that you determine whether there's enough rocks in the wheelbarrow politically is through an impeachment process. So obstruction and uh, collusion, frankly, is still on the radar because those rocks are still in the wheelbarrow and they can't be dumped out in the criminal justice process because of the DOJ policy. I see. So you're looking at shoving aside the indictment and looking at impeachment. And people keep saying, just drop it, move on. This whole impeachment thing is a witch hunt. It's just like Clinton, where they kept looking and looking and looking until they finally found something. And my question is, the rocks in the barrel that are there as part of the Mueller report, are those the only rocks that would be dealt with in an impeachment proceeding? Or would the proceeding also attempt to uncover more and more rocks so that there was never an end to this investigation? Well, I mean, that would be up to Congress. But I mean, we also know, you know, Mr. Cohen is going to jail for crimes that the Department of Justice has implicated the president in. So that would certainly be a rock in the wheelbarrow as well. But let me, I just want to say a couple points about obstruction of justice and what it even means and why we even care if there are rocks in that wheelbarrow. What is obstruction of justice? Now, anytime there's a law that can be violated that that's on the books, you have to understand that's a that's essentially society's determination that we don't like that conduct. So society has decided we don't like murder. So if you commit a murder, you're going to, you can be prosecuted and put in jail. Society has decided we don't like discrimination on the basis of race and gender. If you do that, you won't go to jail, but you'll have to pay fines. There, you can get in trouble. At the turn of the century, the society didn't think that was a problem, right? Society today, if, if someone gives you stink eye in the uh, supermarket checkout line, there's nothing you can do about that. There's no law against stink eye. Society has said, deal with that on your own. You can't go, you can't go to a court, okay? So society has said obstruction is bad for, for generations, right? Obstruction is very old, the concept of obstruction of justice. We've, we as a community don't like that. Why? We want a criminal justice system to function without interference. We want, if, if Uncle Joey is arrested, we want the cops to have to fairly collect evidence against him, not do it because someone's paying them to gin something up. Uh, we want the prosecutor to fairly assess the evidence and, and fairly make a determination as to whether to bring an indictment before the grand jury. We want the grand jury to actually look at the facts and not basically vote to indict because someone is saying, I'm going to break your kneecaps if you don't. Um, we want the judge to preside over the trial based on the facts and based on the rules, not because the Uncle Joey's nemesis paid the judge $100,000. Like we want, we want it to be fair. You know, we, we go to a kid's baseball game. We want the umpire to call balls and strikes. If our kid's playing a really good game, we don't want him to lose just because the umpire's getting paid off by the other team. We've decided that's what's fair, right? So obstruction means interfering with that process, you know, bribing a juror, bribing the judge, uh, threatening someone. In this instance, we know, I mean, there's 10 different instances in the Mueller report. We know, for example, that the president told directed or asked his White House counsel to take steps to fire the actual person, Mr. Mueller, in charge of the entire investigation. That would interfere with the investigation. Most of us don't have that power. We're stuck. I mean, Harvey Weinstein, as much as he was so powerful, he had no power to fire the prosecutors or fire the investigators. The president did, and he tried to do all that. So some would say that's interfering with the investigation. I mean, Nixon tried to do the same thing and it ultimately led to the end of his presidency. So structurally, if we don't care about obstruction, if we let that go by the wayside, we're creating a structure of a presidency where there's no accountability. We're creating a system where whoever gets in that office, because under Trump, no one cared about obstruction, whoever has the power over the Justice Department in the future then can basically do whatever they want in investigations because there's no accountability. And that's kind of a scary prospect. Think of it. They could say, listen, we want you to go after anybody with, with blonde hair. We want you to go after anybody who's a Christian. We want you to manufacture evidence against 
this particular political group or people who re- who go to this book club. That's the slippery slope that obstruction of justice tries to forestall against, that we've got someone with a ton of power that uses it to bully. It's not a Trump versus Hillary thing. It's a structural thing that we have to keep guard rails in place so that the next person who's in power and the next and the next doesn't have free reign to use the levers of power of the Justice Department to investigate, to prosecute, to subpoena, to put people in jail in a way that's really unfair. That's why obstruction is a problem. So there are rocks in the wheelbarrow. And if those rocks just get ignored, then we have we are creating, we're enhancing the institution of the power of the president. What does it look like to not ignore the rocks in the wheelbarrow? Well, if you can't indict a president, which is what the Justice Department determination is made, I, I, you know, I think there are really strong arguments the other way. The, the rocks in the wheelbarrow have to be congressional oversight. It has to be. And that means what? That means investig- that could mean impeachment. At a minimum, it means having, in- having investigations on the Hill. And I know people are saying, oh, listen, we've been through this. We've been through Mueller. But the members of Congress haven't seen all the evidence underlying the Mueller report. They haven't even seen the full Mueller report. When I say evidence, they haven't seen the documents that that are referenced in the Mueller report. They haven't heard from the witnesses that are referenced in the Mueller report. They haven't seen the grand jury testimony. I mean, anyone who is convicted of a crime, anyone who um, who goes to trial, even in a civil context, you can't make a decision. A jury can't make a decision without seeing the original piece of information. You go on the witness stand. You have to hear from the actual witnesses. And Congress is saying, okay, if it can't happen through the, the Justice Department then we want to hear from this from these people about you know firsthand what did the president do why is this partisan why would democrats just because trump is a republican be for further investigating this these rocks in the wheelbarrow and republicans not be why is this a partisan issue i mean that's a really complicated question becky i think the republicans are abdicating their constitutional prerogative to act as a watchdog of the institution of the presidency I mean, there's more than ample information for everybody to be very, very concerned that this presidency is crippled, compromised, problematic. And, you know, if you let the kid jump on the couch, the no jumping on the couch rule goes by the wayside. And that's really a problem. I mean, I I think there's a lot of pieces to it. I think this president has violated a lot of norms of just civility, including attacking opponents and a lot of lies, which are well established. I think people, some people don't care about lying from the bully pulpit, but I, but I think people within his party are worried that if they challenge him, their own political futures will be over and that they do more good than harm in staying in office, even if they have to do it by allowing an unaccountable president. I also think our electoral process is broken in a lot of other ways where, you know, and that's a, that's my next book, frankly, next summer, I have a book coming out on voting and my current book touches on it. But the system itself is distorted through big money, big corporate, foreign, potentially dark money campaign contributions that are really influencing our elected officials more than individual voters' concerns. Um, We have problems with term limits. We have problems with gerrymandering that is creating congressional districts where people don't really have to worry. They don't care about what their voters think because they're going to stay in power. I mean, there are a lot of pieces in place, but the Republicans in Congress under the Nixon administration went to the White House and said, you know, you don't have the votes. We're not going to let, if this goes to an impeachment, a trial essentially in the Senate, you're going to lose, buddy, so you better resign. So impeachment is essentially, there's two parts to it. Impeachment is essentially like a criminal process, but in Congress. So the House of Representatives issues articles of impeachment, which are like a like an indictment by the House. Are there criteria by which? There are not. It's a political question, but but, you know, both Nixon and Clinton, their articles of impeachment included obstruction of justice. So historically, that's squarely legitimate basis for impeachment because both Nixon and Clinton included obstruction of justice in the articles of impeachment. So for Nixon, so, so, so backing up, so the House of Representatives issues what the equivalent of an indictment, the Senate acts like juries. And guess who, who presides? over that trial in the Senate. It is the chief justice of the Supreme Court. It would be Chief Justice Roberts in the context of Mr. Trump. So so for Mr. Nixon, essentially, the, the Senate makes the determination as to whether to convict. And the Republicans went to the White House and said, you know what, Nixon, even though we, you know, the Republicans in Congress aren't backing you anymore, this has gotten too bad. Um, so if, if this goes to a trial in the Senate, you're going to lose. And so Nixon said, okay, I'll resign. In the context of Mr. Clinton, 
It did go to trial in the Senate, and the Senate acquitted. Now, some people say the crimes for which, or the crimes, the political crimes, the 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 articles of impeachment with respect to Mr. Clinton weren't serious enough. Some could say it was a political maneuver by the Democrats. I, I'm not a historian on that, but that's what happened. But I, I think what we're talking about with respect to Mr. Trump is far more serious than what was at stake with Mr. Clinton. I'm not saying Mr. Clinton didn't commit some very serious wrongdoing that required very careful consideration. I'm just saying we're certainly not in a, in a world where we need to move off of this because of the the deep, deep influence of the Russians into our electoral process. It's something we all should worry about as a matter of national security and structure, regardless of who's in the White House. Do you think the takeaway from this conversation is that Congress should proceed with impeachment or that there should be some other kind of investigation? And then on the flip side of that, when you talk about your next book coming out and all of these problems, it can be a little overwhelming to the point where you can forgive a lot of these improprieties because you think everyone's doing this. This is a horrible situation. We've got so many problems. We've already investigated this. Let's move on. So how do we balance this fatigue, this constant barrage of problems and whether you call it the swamp or whether you call it influences, corporate influences, foreign influences, how do we think about this? Do we proceed and keep digging and digging and digging? Is it not doing our jobs to stop digging and move on to other things? Or is it not doing our jobs to push to have more digging within the contents of the Mueller report? I don't really have an opinion on whether the the Democrats should go forward with impeachment. I think if they don't, I understand because they don't have the votes in the Senate and there's virtually nothing they can do to get the vote. I mean, nothing Mr. Trump could do, I think, to move the Senate. So that's why I say, I think the Senate is abdicating its constitutional prerogative in basically saying we would never consider impeachment of a Republican president, no matter what. That's really a problem. So I think you know, I can understand why the Democrats would say we're not going to go down that if, if it can't be resolved. But if that's the case, um, I mean, meaning seriously, if, if it's not going to seriously be be considered by both sides of the aisle, but then the impeachment process isn't working and you might as well cross it out of the of the Constitution. It's a joke, right? And then we don't have, we have a president that can't be indicted and can't be impeached because it's, it's a meaningless tool. And then we have a monarchy or potentially, a, you know, worse. So that's a serious problem. And, and I think we are in a constitutional crisis in that regard, particularly because, you know, the White House and and some people in Congress are uh, Republicans in Congress are just saying, listen, Congress shouldn't even be doing oversight. And that's just that's just really dangerous. I mean, Congress has to do oversight because otherwise we've got an unaccountable presidency, not even Trump, a presidency. I think people need to take voting very, very, very seriously. Uh, and even the 2018 election, which was we had a almost 49 percent voter turnout of eligible voters, which was up over 40 up over the 40% average in the last few decades, that's still less than half of the population that are voting. So I think we need to take back our ability to make our own decisions about our government. I think we need to take back being the bosses of our own government and everyone should vote. You know, in other countries, in Australia, for example, it's mandatory voting. You can be fined for not voting. I'm not advocating that, but it's a national holiday. People get out barbecues and and it becomes like a celebration. It's a it's a moment of unity. We're all in this together as, as individual citizens. This is our government. We're in this together. You know, the politicians don't rule us. We rule the politicians. This is a democracy. And in order to do that, we need to inform ourselves about our own rights, about what it means to vote, and about about the candidates. And in that regard, I'm a constitutional law professor, as you mentioned. I've been teaching law for 12 years, and I'm also a lawyer. I believe in looking at primary sources. I think everyone who's listening to this podcast shouldn't take my word for it, what the Mueller report says. Read it or listen to the many podcasts out there that read it for you. Look look at the indictments yourself. Read the, you know, Rod Rosenstein's referral to of the question of Russian interference to Mr. Mueller. Look at this stuff for yourself. Read, get on the the actual candidates' websites and look at their platforms for yourself. Don't take the BuzzFeeds or the Wall Street Journals or Real Clear Politics or anyone else's word for it or somebody's Twitter account's word for it. Go do the primary research like we all used to do in the old days. Go to the card catalog and pull out the book yourself because the stakes are extraordinarily high right now. I don't think it's an exaggeration and most constitutional experts that I know, other constitutional experts would agree. Um, American democracy is is really hanging by a thread right now. We're in the we're in the twilight potential twilight of it and we have to take it back. Not a Trump thing at this point. It's it's a structural thing and and democracies historically do die. 
we don't have a birthright to these freedoms. And if we've got a government that gets to bully without any consequences, what that means is we're no longer the boss of ourselves and our individual freedoms go out the window. The time to worry is not when the stormtroopers are at the back door, that then it's too late. The, t- the time to worry is now for ourselves and our children and, and to be vigilant about our own freedoms is now. Put the last person you'd want to put in power in that office in your imagination and say, am I okay with that pop person having the kind of power that we're allowing this president to have? If you're not okay with that, then, then we need accountability on the institution of the presidency. Thank you so much. This really helps focus the lens of curiosity on this issue. And we will have links to both audio content of the Mueller report in its entirety, links to the Mueller report if you want to read it in PDF form on appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. Kim, this has been fantastic. This is important stuff, Becky. So thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes for every episode of ACLR and links to all resources mentioned at applycuriositylab.com forward slash blog. It's there that we'll wait to read your answers to each week's Curiosity Bite. Two, in order to avoid missing curiosity-bitten conversations, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and all the other spots that podcasts hang out and wait to be discovered. Toss up a review, especially if you have nice things to say. Finally, for all things Applied Curiosity, including information on workshops and your free membership to the Tribe of the Curious, go to ApplyCuriosityLab.com. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.